Welcome to the Summit for Wellness podcast, where we help you climb to the peak of your health. And now, here is your host, Brian Carroll. Hello and welcome to the Summit for Wellness podcast. I am your host, Brian Carroll, and today's episode is brought to you by our latest program called the Keto Restore Program. If you've thought about going on the keto diet, then this program is what you need to get started because we prepare your body beforehand so that when you go into the keto diet, your body is ready to be successful while on the keto diet. So go check out more about the keto diet at summitforwellness.com slash keto dash restore. Okay, in this episode, I brought on one of my mentors, Patty Mack, or Pat McCluskey, which is probably more of his professional name, who is a trainer at One to One Fitness, and he also trains and teaches a lot of other fitness and wellness professionals in the industry. And so I brought him on to talk about how he combines his fitness programs with his rehab programs and how they really aren't that much different if we're actually taking a look at what fitness and exercise and movement is all about. So let's dive into my conversation with Patty Mack. Pat McCluskey has been training clients and teaching trainers for 30 years. He is the director of education for One to One Fitness and has been on the faculty of the Gray Institute since 2010. He's been privileged to present to international audiences and train clients ranging from NFL and NBA stars to the fitness newbie trying to successfully navigate the aging process. Thanks, Pat, for coming on. Happy to be here, Brian. Hey, Pat, before we get started with how you combine fitness with rehab programs, can you go into your background a little bit and what got you into fitness and what brought you to this point now? Sure. Uh, I went to West Virginia University and I I went there because they had a great physical therapy program at the time. Now, granted, that was 30 years ago. I'm sure the program's still great. But at the time, it was uh, the very beginnings of when physical therapy went from an undergraduate degree to a required graduate level degree. So I was paying for school by playing soccer. And when I got into the university and applied for the professional program, they said, hey, you're gonna have to give up soccer if you're gonna get into PT school, undergrad. And I, I said, well, I can't pay for school otherwise. And the counsel that I received from physical therapists that I knew was to get my undergrad and go back to grad school. But when I went back, was going back to grad school, my dad was sick. Uh, and I was a little worried about being partway through a graduate degree and not, not being done with my schooling, if you will. So I went back and got a master's degree in exercise physiology. My father did end up passing away, and uh, I stumbled upon my business partner, Doug Vasiliadis. He had just started one-to-one fitness in Washington, D.C., and at, at that time, that was 1988, the, in the Washington, D.C. Yellow Pages, which is a concept that probably some young personal trainers have no concept <laughs> of um, long before the Internet, there were two personal trainers listed, our company and another gentleman. He actually is still in business, too. But now, of course, personal training has gone from two personal training groups in the entire uh, metro region of the nation's capital to personal training being available on 
basically multiple multiple places on every city block in America um, and most towns. So the, I, I often thought about going back for physical therapy studies. In fact, I gave notice to my business partner twice. And in each case, I ended up stumbling upon or discovering other educational scenarios in fitness that were super intriguing and really satisfied my my thirst for awareness and knowledge and you know more about how the body moves and um, and certainly fitness over my career has segued from just being about bodybuilding or losing fat to sport performance to now be very very much a format where people come to try to feel better and age better and more successfully and and in certain ways use movement to reduce their pain and while increasing their functionality. So it's proven to be, the field has proven for me to be everything that I would have hoped physical therapy was. At what point did you start to notice a trend is shifting more into a way where the fitness exercises are more rehab-based or movement-based or more functional for the activities that most people do? To me, I, I think it, it certainly there have been some educators that have really been groundbreaking. You know, my, one of my mentors, Gary Gray, Dave Tiberio, Gray Institute, Lenny Parasino, the, uh, and others who've, who've recognized that, wow, we can, we can provide information and insight to these professionals, meaning fitness trainers, and they can do even more effective stuff because they're really on the front lines with people. In the realm of physical therapy, I, I've always felt for those professionals because they might have five, six appointments with somebody. I, I trained a guy yesterday who has been a client for 30 years, four to five sessions a week. Now, that's not, everybody doesn't do that. But uh, to answer your question, I think as in addition to the educational input, I think that as the professional community has aged, people like me, who've made it a career, who aren't, who aren't in and out of it in two or three years, they've, they've come to find they wanted to provide even greater services and even greater benefit than simply pumping up, than simply pumping up a bicep or uh, getting somebody to, to bench more or, or jump higher. Not that those are bad things in any way, shape, or form. What it, you know, everybody's got their own juice. But when you start hitting 40 and 50 and can't get down on the floor with your dog or 60 and can't play with your grandkids and you start realizing, wow, I'm compromised on vacation. I can't walk as far. I can't do. You start looking for help. And uh, I think personal training is, is the answer to that myself. Do you have any idea why there's such a high turnover rate for trainers? Because I know you work with a lot of trainers and trainer development, so I'm sure you see people come in and out all the time. So why is it harder to find people that have been in this field for such a long time? Well, certainly lots of fields have turnover. The personal training is not the only one. But because personal training, when somebody comes out of the gates, they either have to be entrepreneurial starting their own business, getting their own clientele, or they do that in the security of a big club. In either case, starting out is really hard. The, it means, because when you want, if you want to 
provide training services. You have to do it when people want to exercise. So it's, it's if, if you're a bartender, you, you can't make a living as a bartender at working nine to five. Same thing with a personal trainer. You're going to be working morning rush hours, evening rush hours, and weekends when people want to be available to that training. So uh, I think that hill is very challenging, and it's not for the faint of heart. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It can be very tough to be a trainer, especially with such a split schedule, which a lot of trainers have, because you're waiting for the rushes of when people are getting off work or before work. That's right. Last summer, you actually had a health scare yourself, and it was able to kind of bring a lot of this into perspective for you because you had to rehabilitate yourself and start really utilizing these own type of movements for your own uh, training program for yourself. Can you talk about what happened? Oh, sure. The, uh, just after Easter last spring, I suffered a stroke. Uh, I got very lucky. Uh, while I have the format to talk about it, I think, you know, I have to have to tell everybody listening, if you think it's a stroke, call, don't delay. Uh, if, if what happened to me, the symptoms and whatnot had happened in my gym to a client, I would have had the rescue squad there in minutes. Uh, I hemmed and hawed and delayed, and uh, it took me about an hour to get the rescue squad there. Part of that was that I was compromised. My arm and leg went numb, and I was really, really dizzy. Um, uh, but I could have made the call earlier. I got really lucky that that didn't cost me in a life-changing way. With the stroke, on, with, as they began to do tests after the stroke, they realized I had a genetic heart anomaly where that blood clot was most likely created in my left uh, uh, ventricle and the left atrium and kicked out directly into my body. So uh, it was something that I guess I'd lived with all my life. All the physicians involved felt strongly that it, it may have worsened with age. Um, it may, you know, may have, but all of them said that uh, my fitness level had probably kept me very healthy and low on the clotting team for a long time. So what it led to was open heart surgery to repair the heart. So it, it, the stroke gave me great respect. It, it was the experience that you'd expect of, holy cow, I'm so lucky. I'm so grateful to be alive. I'm scared. The open heart surgery and the recovery from that gave me some interesting insights because when you come out of open heart surgery, when they open you up down the sternum and your heart's been opened up, I mean, while they, the heart starts ticking again, you know, hour, you know, right away after surgery, it's working. It's still, it was amazing to me how fragile and how delicate and how frail I felt. I, at 50, 52 years old, before my stroke, I felt robust and pretty vibrant and healthy. And I was not a, though I'm a fitness professional, I was not the sort of guy who uh, was trying to kill it with my training. I was very happy to, to use exercise to maintain my health and navigate the aging process. I wasn't trying to beat father time. But after the uh, open heart surgery, boy, it was so interesting. I mean, it, it, I, it was sort of like... Um, on Game of Thrones, that expression, winter is coming, it gave me a sense, Brian, of what winter or being old will be like. I mean, it was, 
I was nervous in a car. I was nervous going down steps for a week. And uh, certainly as, as using exercise and movement to help recover. And I think my recovery was expedited because of, because of the styles of exercise I've done in the past and, and the volume um, and the application of different strategies. But uh, as I came out of it, I came to recognize, wow, this is how my senior citizen clients might feel um, worried about falling and uh, uh, very vulnerable to loud noises and confusion and crowds, uh, how they might feel coming into my gym with music belting out of the speakers. And if it's crowded at a rush hour, you know, that it could be a daunting scenario for them. So it, uh, and then lastly, I, uh, it seems having not been able to exercise a lot for a period of months that it exposed me to the reality that for me, and it's probably a reality for lots of people that movement, whether it's high intensity exercise or athletics or yoga class, but movement for me, I think has always been a tonic to keep my mind calm and my spirit sort of uh, in, in, in proper perspective, you know, my view in proper perspective. And uh, when, I w- when I was denied the ability to exert, move, it really, in, in, in conjunction with being post-op, it's normal for after a, a, a major surgery, they say, to have some depression and anxiety. But for me, I think it also had a lot to do with the fact that I couldn't really exercise the way I was used to for a long time. So uh, being back to that now, I really see, wow, that, that served me very well. I want to stay, stay healthy enough that I can exercise and keep my mind right and uh, my spirit right, to, uh, even more so than trying to look good in a swimsuit. Yeah, and using you know, that approach that you use to uh, uh, recover from that, we see this kind of disconnect between rehab and fitness. And we think a lot of times it's completely different entities of the movement world. However, what you've been doing is kind of combining the two, where sometimes exercise is also rehab and it's also prehab and it's also a way to build you up fitness-wise. So can you talk about how you're utilizing that within your own um, uh, studio there? Sure. So the we've, I would say in our studio, the majority, certainly 60 to 70% of our clientele are real adults, if you will. And by that, I mean, respectfully, people who have survived some orthopedic scenarios or metabolic scenarios that maybe they've put on weight. And, uh, you know, they're People, 40, they're not people who are going to love to go into a, a big box gym in a tank top the, for any number of reasons, whether they're not comfortable. And every adult in that format, they've got orthopedic scenarios they have to navigate. They also begin to have cardiovascular slash metabolic scenarios. For me, the, I, I'd had such a, an upbringing professionally through the, my studies with the, and work with the Gray Institute in using movement to help orthopedic scenarios. But in my case of my personal health, not only did I have to apply those scenarios myself, but I also had to recover cardiovascularly and metabolically. You know, my tolerances to exertion were really low. And it gave me that appreciation, as I mentioned before, for people who, 
who aren't super fit, you know, who are really unfit in many ways. So in our studio, uh, nothing's changed since my event to where it's biased or focused a great deal. Um, we still believe that when somebody comes in, you have to meet them where they are uh, with regard to all the physiological and psychological systems. So uh, I think if I were to become a client, my staff would be hopefully real well prepared for me because they'd treat me, you know, mind, body, and emotions, mind, body, and spirit to, to be able to satisfy what, what could we do that Pat likes that's going to lift him up a little bit and not just be boring exercise. What could we do that's going to remedy the reality of surgical repair through his chest cavity and um, compromise posture for a couple, couple months. And, uh, what can we do? Can we exert him enough to keep his his mind clear, you know, and his head head in a good place? So, me, meeting that client on an individual basis uh, has has always been, and thankfully, been our credo, and very much influenced by uh, some of the legends in the industry, um, and uh, it's worked well, and I think it'll continue to work well. And so when you have a client that comes into the studio, let's say presenting similar symptoms to what you had, or really any client in general, obviously you're going to do some kind of assessment process for them. What does a typical assessment process look like? Well, because we're big believers, as much of the world is now, in the importance of movement quality and movement efficiency, we, we, we go right to, our, our go-to is 3D map, by the uh, Institute, and so we assess them at the ankle, hip, upper back, and shoulder uh, in a global fashion. And then, if we need to, we can get more local in terms of, of particular glitches in the system from a movement standpoint. In the course of that, we we can easily overlay because that particular assessment is designed to segue right into training scenarios. We can easily provide enough exertion that we can get a, a, a a subjective baseline of their uh, tolerance for exertion and their capacity. So we know whether we're starting them with, you know, high intensity strategies or uh, lower intensity strategies or a blend of the two. So the 3D maps is our go-to and uh, with almost everybody who walks through the door. And then after you assess someone, what we see from traditional studios is the trainer will create like an eight to 12 week program and based off of what you want to achieve and your goals. And then you are set on that program for that duration of time. You don't move away from that, that program, you stick to it. Otherwise you're not going to get the results that you need. Now for you, do you create similar programs or do you have the end goal in mind? And then do you check in with your clients every single day to see where they're at because you said that you like to meet people where they are or okay. what what's that process it's interesting brian because because i bet that my team is we probably are the least pro long-term program design group we don't do any periodization not that i don't think there's a time and a place for it but to try to meet that client on an individual basis you know where they are on a daily basis, we have an expression in our shop that um, uh, great training is what the client needs and wants that day. So that doesn't mean that we've, we, we certainly design a, the constructs and direction of a program 
uh, Lenny, Lenny Parasino would say, we design a roadmap. So we know if we're going north in, in general or south or east or west, but then we might have to veer off of that on one day. Somebody comes in and uh, they're, they're struggling with a cold, but it's supposed to be a high intensity day based on the long-term program design. That's, you're, you're sort of out of luck. I, I remember training an MBA guy uh, many moons ago, and we were about three weeks in. This was 15 years ago when I still did periodization programs for our setting. And, um, and I want to be clear, periodization programs are brilliant, in, especially in the high school and college athletic scenario. But in this case, this was an MBA athlete. He was going to be with me all summer. We were about three weeks in. I had designed the program. And it was a big, important day. And he, came, you know, the next two or three days, he came in and he said, "Hey, I'm, I've got to go visit my mom. I got to leave." <laughs> and I said, "What do you mean? This is this is these are critical, peaking days." He said, "I'm really sorry, you know, my mom." And so what we found in the fitness world, in in the lay, in the if you will, the regular people, but but all of our people, I think, train like athletes. I mean, they they work, push their tolerances hard in their own way, they, um, they're fortunate if during the course of a calendar year, they only get sick one time and only have a family member get sick one or two, one time, but that's two weeks out of the year already. Then you have busyness and festivities at Christmas and at least two vacations. Sometimes with a personal training clientele, it might be three, maybe four. And so you begin to have, and then you add in a work crisis or two, and you begin to have sort of unpredictable undulations in your program anyway. So we design what we call general recommendations. How, what styles are going to work? What are our orthopedic targets? And then every day, we vary it with the individual going in. So, uh, and we feel that neural variability of not doing the same lunge or the same bench press or the same uh, pulling motion, but varying it by plane, by, um, you know, in the, in the uh, CAFS course, the Certificate in Applied Functional Science, that course talks about the variables of movement, the observational essentials of movement, and it taught me how to, to vary movement in lots of ways. So we, we use that format a lot, where somebody might not do the same lunge or press or flexion motion or extension motion. For weeks, they're doing slight variations in speed and load. So we think that neuroavailability is key no matter what somebody's goals are. The, if you just think about it in the body, bodybuilding world, where as an industry, we garnered a lot of our sort of initial information, the, you know, the good bodybuilder didn't do a, just a flat press. He did a decline press and, or she did an incline press and dumbbells. They changed the tool. You know, so they, they knew and, and learned instinctively. And by, by experience, that diversifying what you were doing in small ways had huge, huge value. And so with within the fitness world, too, we see where a lot of people say with specific exercises that certain joints have to go through certain motions. Like if you're squatting, then the knee shouldn't go past the toes. And we get a lot of these different ideas of how exercises should look. Is there a time and place for these Uh or is there more than one way to move the body? Uh, there's certainly more than one way to move the body in lots of ways. So, for example, the 
you know, if you go out to a 5K race in your town, you'll notice people getting the job done running from point A to point B in very different fashions. Obviously, it's got similarities. If you watch the Olympics, or maybe a better, a more timely example would be skiing. Lots of people get down the hill in different ways. But when you watch those elite skiers uh, in Korea in the upcoming games, they all have, they'll, it'll almost, if you cut off their faces, you'd, it'd be hard to discern whose movement was different. Every once in a while, you get an anomaly like a Michael Johnson who literally runs differently than everybody else. But there are lots of ways to move. Your question was about exercises in the gym. Certainly, the heavier the load, the more strict and disciplined a particular mechanical approach needs to be. Um, when you're doing more functional global movements that might be more applicable to real life, you're lunging and picking something up off the floor, you're uh, getting up off the floor, There's then I think that diversification becomes much more acceptable. In fact, very endorsable. You want to do that. You want to do things in different ways. But if you were to put, you know, 315 on my back and have me squat, there's there's an optimal mechanic to that uh, for my particular structure. It might vary a little bit between mine and yours, but it begins to look much more identical. Um, and that would be that would be sort of equivalent to go back to my skiing analogy or my running analogy. When you look at the elite performers who are generating the top amount of force in a specific task, there's a lot of similarity in the way they do it. So. Is there a specific threshold between what we would consider to be a functional movement and a functional weight compared to a heavy load? Boy, that's a great question. It's, it's so individualized and it's not just individualized by size and weight, but the, you have the big, the big one that nobody can be objective about. And that is an individual's tissue tolerance. You know, so if if you live in a major city, New York, Washington, L.A., and Dallas, all the other major ones, Seattle, the the news of the science section, health and science section in a newspaper will once every six months put out the Shape magazine type article. It says, you know, adults need to lift heavy things. Stimulates bone density, stimulates metabolism, great for hormonal promotion of hormonal certain hormonal cascades. But what they don't talk about is that the, the impossibility of knowing how much weight can your 45-year-old attorney who hasn't been in a weight room for 20 years, how much can he do? How, how many reps at a near max load can he do before all of a sudden he, he tweaks a shoulder and he can't train? As a trainer, you don't get to eat because <laughs> you're not doing any work. But more importantly... This, this gent can't be doing the things that are going to help get him healthy. And uh, so it's a lose-lose. So the risks get very high when high load and very high force generation start to uh, come into play. And what I, I think is a misnomer when people start talking about body weight exercises. Well, you know, you know this, Brian, and mo many of the listeners might. If you put your hands on your bathroom scale, you know, you, the bathroom scale shows about two-thirds of your body weight. So for some people, two-thirds of their body weight in a push-up, or if they flip it over and do it on a bench press, give or take a few pounds, that's, that might be pretty heavy. Not pretty heavy for the college football player. The, they're going to do 
you know, double and double plus their body weight uh, happily. But for the, the average fitness enthusiast, that might be really heavy. And then if you talk about a chin up, you know, the other day I had a wonderful client say, hey, I really want to be able to do 10 chin ups. The, he can't do one at the moment. So that's an incredible leap uh, in success or what he wants his threshold to be. And every time he does a chin up or tries to, he's dealing with nearly, you know, 100% of his body weight. That's a big, big deal <laughs> for, for arms. For your legs, not so much. You get up out of the chair, you know, that sort of thing. But so high external load, again, to, to dial into your question, you know, wh what is that threshold? I think anytime the weight is heavy enough that you think you can only move it in the task in one way to be successful, you're at that point. <laughs> if you're if you're taking a viper or a body bar or a medicine ball and you're doing a diagonal pattern of some sort, there might be lots of ways to change that. But eventually you could make that heavy enough with an individual that there'll be one one best mechanical pattern for that body. So and but that as you know, that doesn't get exposed sometimes until you get there. So we, we believe strongly that it is much better to undercook than to overcook. Because once you overcook, you might like my wife tells me when I'm grilling steak, because once you overcook that steak, we're not eating it. It's wrecked. And in the fitness, the, the metaphor in the gym, once somebody gets hurt, they're not coming back for a while. It's just that simple. They can't do what, what they need to do to, to be to get healthy. So are you also looking for uh compensations and whatnot within the body too so if they let's say they're moving 15 pounds really well and then 20 pounds all of a sudden you see all these compensations happening throughout the body is that that threshold that you want to back off from i i think that's a it's a brilliant perspective on your part so you have to try to trim the tough part is in most gyms like in your in your example 15 to 20 pounds that's a 33 percent increase in weight just basic math tells you that's a lot if you or I could increase our salaries by 33% or our income by 33% in the coming year, we would be really, really happy. <laughs> um, <laughs> so the idea of whether it's weight or to take it out beyond the, the weight room, somebody wants to increase their volume when they run. They want to go from two miles to three. Two miles was challenging, but three miles seems like the next best level, the next logical step. But again, in that case, that's a 50% increase in volume. Um, so whether it's volume, duration of work, or distance covered, <clears throat> or, or external load, as soon as you start to need to compensate, then you are smart to back down a little bit. Because most people will never look back, whether it's the trainer or the client. They'll never look back and say, man, I wish... On February 6th in 2018, I'd have done five more pounds or done those last two reps. But you, they could easily look back if they got hurt on that day and say, man, I wish I hadn't gone in the gym that day. <laughs> you do get some of the crazy people that write down every little thing that they do that they might go back and be like, I wish I did 100 pounds instead of 97 pounds on that day. But so you, there's some people out there that are crazy enough to do that. But like you said, yeah, the main yeah, idea they might, is... They might be outliers. Might be yeah. Outliers. If yeah. you get hurt, you're going to know. 
And that's not what we want to do to any of our clients that we work with at all. I think from speaking to the trainers in the audience, the majority of us are dealing with, if we're dealing with outliers, they're, they're on the, the other side of the spectrum. They are probably people with lower tissue tolerance, people who don't love to move, who are not inclined to break a sweat you know, every day or it's not a good day. So, so those are the people we're servicing in the majority. Now, if we're doing re, re, reconditioning and uh, pre, prehab work, as you put it earlier, they might be some, some athletes uh, who are either coming back from an injury, but, and, but then I think even more so, undercook versus overcook has to be the mantra, undertrain versus over, overtrain. Right. Earlier, you had mentioned uh, a few different times about all these different ways that you can tweak the exercises that you're doing with people. Can you talk about these different uh, ways that you can tweak the exercises? Sure. So the, I mentioned the, the course, the online course, the certificate, the CAFS course by the Gray Institute. They've, they, I believe, have brilliantly couched it in terms of variables, ways to take emotion. So the they talk about modifying the action, complementing it with an additional movement. So if you're doing a squat, you could add in a, a, a curl, um, add in an overhead press, that sort of thing. Um, so you could add or subtract portions of additional actions to modify your the movement that you're using. Then they might they would teach you could modify the environment because doing it on a different surface or using a different tool, you know, certainly doing a, a squat with two dumbbells in your hand versus a Viper versus, you know, can be a different experience. And if we start thinking about more functional patterns, uh, that it becomes even easier to, to think about doing a diagonal swing with a body bar or a battle rope or um, dumbbells becomes very different in terms of how the body has to decelerate the momentum and come back the other way. So. When we talk about environment, it's what you're using, the surface you're on, what you're in, running on a treadmill, a little different than running on a um, uh, sand, a little different than running on a hill. But I tend to think of things more about in-gym because that's what I do. So I don't get into outdoor stuff too much. But uh, modifying their environment is important, can be important, and provide a neural variation. Modifying the distance, horizontal distance that somebody might do something, the vertical distance if it's uh, – squat or an overhead press or an up vertical press. Uh, and then certainly what the, the entirety of the industry has, has embraced, you know, is direction. When I started 30 years ago, it was forward lunges. And then maybe we started doing reverse lunges where we still kept weight on that forward leg. Um, but we never thought of stepping backward and putting all of the weight onto our back foot. But if you've ever played a sport, if you've ever had to back away from somebody suddenly, it is a backward step. So the, it is a, ne a necessary thing. And now, of course, we lunge in uh, all directions all over the place, what the Gray Institute might call uh, a matrix, really providing as many variations within the context of an exercise as we can. But, you know, again, in the bodybuilding world, the most elementary matrix was doing it through the workout, some incline, some decline, uh, some flat. Some with dumbbells, some on machine, um, taking different and then doing a fly motion. Same muscle involved, but slightly different activity, different amplitude of motion, changing the speed of motion. And certainly what 
most trainers uh, are very comfortable with the idea of modifying load. It is a different neural experience to lift something heavy and hormonal than it is to lift something light. Doesn't mean that any of those variations that I just talked about are good or bad. The job of the, we believe the job of the trainer is to be the artist, to say, wow, the scientist in me has sort of uncovered what I think might be needs in this person on all, all three aspects, mind, body, and emotion. The, and now the artist in me is going to take all these potential variations and try to provide something that stimulates them on a neural level, on an emotional level, on a psychological level. Uh, and we have some clients who love the same routine over and over and over. They really want to get good at certain things, and that's okay. The, but the majority of our clients are what we would call green light clients. We decide what their fundamental needs are going to be, and then we try to give them different variations all the time. So what you're saying is trainers need to think. Without question. I think you know the, the, the training industry uh, is for better or worse, is highly populated by situations where somebody's into kettlebells, so that's what all their clients do. Somebody's into Olympic lifting, that's what their clients do. Uh, but there's just no way that you could line up a clientele of eight different people and say, all eight of these people need the same style or specific exercise. It doesn't mean every trainer develops professional go-tos in my for me, I'd be lying to you if I didn't say I love a diagonal patterns with people because it forces thoracic movement in all three planes of motion, hip movement in all three planes. It allows me to get a lot of bang for my buck neurally, metabolically, muscularly, hormonally. Um, uh, but it doesn't mean that I have everybody just do diagonal patterns. Uh, they, they, they need diversity on on multiple levels. So I think that the thoughtful artist, if you will, is, is really what a client has to be going out to try to find the, the trainer who you think, wow, every one of their sessions was exactly the same. He just adjusted the weight. And if it hurt, they didn't do it. You know, I think they're missing the boat. Just think about the high school football team. The idea that the quarterback and the wide receivers and the kicker would be doing the exact same programs as your linemen, you know, and uh, it just, it makes no sense. And that's just the diversity of a football team. Start talking about people off the street and it becomes, becomes crazy. Yeah. Everybody has different needs for their fitness routines. And you mentioned if you had eight people in front of you and applying the same workout to them, isn't going to work out for every single person. What are your thoughts with group fitness classes or like small group training classes? How do you change the exercises to fit each and every single person? You're, you're a smart guy, Brian, because that immediately does corner the trainer. And we do, we do small group. We've had very successful boot camp scenarios. But what we then had to do was the rubber has to hit the road and said, okay, if we've got to make choices that are going to apply to the majority of people, and be able to be easily modified to suit the individual, then you, you end up sort of picking go-tos. The, and they still can be diversified. With all the, the 10 observational essentials of movement, you still 
can diversify a squat and diagonal patterns. Just think about the difference between if you took your body bar or a Viper, a heavier Viper, and you straight arm swung it from knee height on your right to overhead on your left, big diagonal pattern. Then you increase the weight. You'd almost, you couldn't swing it with straight arms. You'd have to do a bit of a snatch, whether it was alternating hand or two hand pull push, you know? The, so what we've had to do in our small group work is we are providing a much less individualized situation that's, that goes for every small group or large group format in the world. Um, uh, but you, you, do have to, you do have to narrow it down and say, here are my go-tos. And compared to a one-on-one session, there certainly is a difference in how creative and effective you can get. And then earlier you were talking about different tools that you can use, which could be dumbbells or anything along those lines. And we know the tool does not make the exercise and it does not make the modality. But do you have any specific tools that you really like to use or you think are essential that everyone should be using or utilizing in some way? Yeah, I, I, certainly dumbbells are very diverse. Um, uh, they can be used for a number of things. The majority of the, the toys i say that respectfully the training toys on the market they're really good for two or three exercises in truth the most of the manufacturers want you to then want want to try to push that you could do pardon me you could do your whole workout with this this specific item if you don't have to it's so much better not to so to me dumbbells uh vipers battle ropes have come to, to like a great deal because they're they're movable. Uh, you can you can adjust the load pretty easily, uh, and they're they just there's there's not a heavy eccentric load, so there's not a lot of tissue soreness or tissue damage from them. Um, and you can certainly get high highly elevated metabolic situations, uh, big feel factor uh, through the through the in local areas, still get good work. Uh, so those those are biggies. Certainly the the body is the biggest. You know, so uh, the most trainers would say the funnest people to train are the people who can move the best, who can do the most movement. That's the most important tool. But the reality is most of the people we deal with who seek our services are people who don't move perfectly. They're not Olympic athletes. And uh, our job is to try to be able to instruct them and coach them in a way that makes movement not only enjoyable for them, but, you know, serve their health needs too. Awesome, Pat. Well, you brought a lot of really good information on how you've been integrating kind of fitness with the rehab world and everything in between. Is there any last words you want to say about that connection between rehab and fitness? I think that you know you you said it very nicely when you said it's a continuum. The the things that I I've done with you know my NFL quarterback, they are very similar to what I I did strategically. Different techniques, different exercises, but the same strategies apply to the uh, to the sixty five year old uh, gentleman that I train uh, every afternoon. They they have different wants from their program, but they need to be able to, they do need to be able to move well at the at the foot and ankle and the hip and the upper back. Uh, they need to have, if you will, a, a fascial scenario that is fluid relative to their performance needs, uh, and certainly. The NFL quarterback's got a different demand every Sunday than the other guy. But if, if, if 
my afternoon client starts to have trouble going downstairs, getting out of the car, that's just as important to him as the, as it is for the quarterback throwing touchdown, throwing the ball well. Um, uh, when you start to feel your functionality slipping away, as I did this this summer, you begin to really embrace in a different way. Holy cow, my my health is a really real real gift, and I've I've got to cherish it and make sure that I'm nurturing it. Yeah, for some people, standing up, that's the same feeling as throwing that touchdown pass. So everybody has their different thresholds. No question. No question. I was unhealthy enough at one point this summer where I couldn't go on a particular uh, vacation with my family. And uh, it really struck me. Wow. This is, this is how some grandparents feel when they no longer can do stuff with their grandkids. And, you know, it's, it's really... It was it was like winning a Super Bowl to me, being able to go on the next vacation. Awesome, Pat. Well, you can find out more about Pat at one to one fitnesscom You've also helped out a lot with the Gray Institute with the CAFS program that you were talking about. Is there anything else you want to mention from the Gray Institute? Well, I think that I, I one of the things that has propelled our industry from just aesthetic to movement quality and uh, trying to, to provide even even higher higher diversity of services and benefits has been the education available. And I can't endorse highly enough the, uh, the Gray Institute's 3D MAPS course on assessment and uh, the, the movement assessment and performance system. And then the CAFS course, which is really the training behind that. So in the one, you learn an assessment approach. And in the other, you learn then how to be the artist. So, uh, and the impact that those courses had on my staff and our clientele were really profound. Um, I, I don't know that I can endorse them highly enough. There's lots of great education out there, but uh, if I, you've, you've been nice enough to give me tw- 10 seconds on a soapbox, those, those were game changers for our company. And I've gone through both of those as well. And I also agree that they're absolute game changers. Now, are you, do you have any social media presence for one to one fitness at all? We do. We have a Facebook page. Uh, uh, we, we, I'm embarrassed to say we, we are probably very behind the times in terms of our social media presence, but the nature of our clientele, Brian, while we have the privilege of working with some elite athletes, the Majority of our clientele are people who they're not quite as social media uh, obsessed as maybe somebody who's going to CrossFit or uh, some of the group Orange Theory, some of the group places that um, uh, cater to a younger crowd. So, so that's kind of you to ask, but no, I'm not a not a social media guy. Awesome, Pat. Thanks so much for coming on. Uh, Brian, a pleasure pleasure to to be with you. I'm very kind to, uh, of you to have me on, and I hope you are able to continue the good work with the podcast. I've loved the ones that I've listened to. And there you have it. That is Pat McCloskey of One to One Fitness. One of the things I found extremely interesting was his story about his stroke because I didn't know he had the stroke before him and I were talking. And so to hear the entire process of how he felt like he aged so much just from that whole process and how he had to apply his uh own protocols and his own principles to his rehab strategies was super interesting to hear.
We will continue this conversation over in our Facebook group. So if you haven't joined our Facebook group, then go to summitforwellness.com slash tribe to join us for more of this discussion on how to integrate your fitness routines with your rehab and your prehab and to make sure that what you are doing with your exercises is going to benefit you for any kind of future activity or anything that you want to accomplish. Okay, next week we are going to have a guest on to talk about autoimmunity and movement and how she has been able to work with those suffering from autoimmune disorders and still be able to provide them really high quality movement programs. So that will be here next week. Keep climbing to the peak of your health and we will see you next time.